Hey, it's Mark. Well, we're recording this week's podcast as a thick snow blankets the Mid-Atlantic area. So with MMM's big event coming up this Thursday, our fifth annual 40 Under 40 Awards program in NYC, instead of starting with the usual chit-chat, I thought I'd ease your mind with a little weather forecast. While it's cold and gray, we may catch a break. That blizzard's going to blow right by us. All this moisture coming up out of the south by midday is going to push on to the east of us. Here in NYC, you can expect drier weather. It's going to get up to 38 Thursday, 20s overnight, and it's expected to be dry. In fact, skies will give way to sunshine by tomorrow. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled program. The 40 Under 40 showcases one of the industry's biggest strengths, the abundance of accomplished young talent. And this year's program is no exception. So this week's guest is Jasmine Korea, Director of Customer Experience at Merck. Besides spending quite a bit of time on the agency side, Jasmine served in the Peace Corps in the Philippines and earned her Master's in Behavioral Science from the London School of Economics before jumping over to Pharma. And all of this before she turned 40. She shares the kinds of behavioral science nudges marketers are incorporating these days and what are some of the challenges to its greater use. This week on the podcast, a mini state of the state on the application of behavioral science and pharma marketing. Unless she's here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark, today I'll recap last week's showdown between Bernie Sanders and Big Pharma at a Senate hearing where lawmakers questioned industry execs on why drug prices are so high. And Jack, besides a certain big game that took place, what's trending in healthcare this week? Well, you caught me, Mark. We're going to be talking about the health and wellness ads that ran during Super Bowl 58. We're going to talk about Mark Cuban's healthcare discussion on a recent podcast episode and Chernobyl's mutant wolves showing resistance to cancer. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hello, Jasmine, and welcome to the MMM Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you're Director of Customer Experience at Merck. And just for the benefit of our audience, aside from many other interesting things about Jasmine, she recently earned her Master's in Behavioral Science from London School of Economics. So I thought that doing kind of a mini state of the state as far as the application of behavioral science to pharma marketing could make for a very interesting interview. And here we are. Uh, but first things first, Jasmine, congrats on your induction into MMM's 40 Under 40 Class of 2024. Thank you. Very impressive, and you're, you're part of a very impressive group. And that event celebrating the inductees is coming up February 15th in New York City, so this week. And so let's just get into it here. Uh, first of all, Jasmine, would you mind talking about your experience a little bit, which includes quite a bit of time on the agency side, followed by a very unusual career shift before coming to pharma? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my career in New York City, working at um, several different advertising and communication firms. I started through the IPG training program, and it was a really cool experience where I got to move to different IPG, um, that's interpublic group um, agencies, and really see so many different sides of the industry. And I stayed in the industry for, for several years, working my way through different agencies. Uh, I was at RGA, I was at Sabas, uh, um, Profero, several different agencies, and working across the board on different uh, clients. So that was a lot of salad dressings or shampoos, uh, and some some pharma companies actually as well during during that time. And so, you know, it was exciting work. You get to see a lot of different parts of 
the industry. You also get to work on a lot of different types of clients. And so that, that was, that was really fun to do. And I sort of got to a point after several years where I was sort of looking to do something a little bit different. I wanted to see what else was out there. And I also wanted to serve the community and serve the world in different ways. And that is how I got into the Peace Corps. And uh, there was an opportunity in the Peace Corps to work alongside IBM's uh, Corporate Service Corps to help out the Philippine Weather Bureau in coming up with communication strategies for typhoon warnings and for uh, sort of disaster risk reduction, climate change, these sorts of things. And they were looking for someone who had experience in communications and the industry and understanding digital strategies and how we can leverage that information to reach people. And, and so that's where my experience, seemingly you wouldn't think so, right? <laughs> uh, coming from the advertising world, it's sort of a bit of a disconnect, but actually that's, that's exactly what they needed. They needed someone who uh, knew how to reach people. And yeah. so that was the opportunity there at that time. I mean, yeah, that, that's fascinating. I mean, in a way, not as surprising as some might think, given that, as you say, the skills you picked up from working in the agency world uh, had direct application because you were stationed in the Philippines, you're developing these digital tools to help them kind of, you know, take weather data and better prepare for disasters. And that was, what, a three-year program in association with IBM? Yeah, this was a this was a short a condensed version. So this was a one year program. It was through the response program, so it's a, it's a little bit more condensed. But it was it was still required being embedded in the community and practicing a lot of the skills that you do, sort of in corporate world anyway, which is a lot of collaboration, a lot of reaching out to people, working together, workshopping different ideas and approaches. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit about a few years ago, the. Um association or relationship between certain agencies in the medical area and the effort to eradicate polio, you know, where the mm-hmm. NGOs were really tapping into uh, the agencies to try to stimulate public demand for the, uh, the shot, the inoculation, uh, and, and their advice on how to eradicate it and going to the ends of the earth, literally, you know, the last vestiges <laughs> of where this virus is. Um, but uh, so, so it's, it's, we've seen it a little bit before, but uh, that's really fascinating. And then after uh, the, the Peace Corps, um, and by the way, this is all the more impressive given you hadn't even turned 40 yet, but when did you find time to get your master's? Yeah. Well, so after I came back from the Peace Corps, I, I knew I wanted to work in, in public good. Uh, and I had some experience in pharma, so that transitioned into uh, working at Merck, which is where I currently am now. And so in this role, I'm able to sort of take that global expertise, that global experience, bring that in with that communications um, background and uh, work on different efforts and campaigns, in particular for vaccines. Uh, and so that is sort of how I transitioned and as part of that transition, I, I always had this excitement for behavior science. It was something that I was actually always sort of at the back of my mind. And I, I realized now that uh, I was working in, in the vaccine space. But actually, there was a lot of opportunity. And so I was looking at different programs. And I, I came upon the um, London School of Economics program. And so I... Um, I applied for that for that program, and uh, and just as it happened, um, 
a few months later, there was a global pandemic. So I was learning and applying at the same time. Hmm. So your, your work at Merck kind of precipitated the return to school, but you, as you say, behavioral science was always in the back of your mind. Yeah, that's right. And I think working in advertising communications and in digital strategy, you, you're already practicing some of the principles of behavior science. You just don't know that you're doing that at the time. And some of the things are, in some of the concepts in behavior science are intuitive. And some of them, there's more rigor behind them and more nuance behind them. And so I was curious about expanding upon that sort of initial layer of my understanding of behavior science. That, that's a great sum up. Uh, I think that's kind of why some of so, some of our coverage of this field has um, kind of played out the way it has, because you have some of some of these principles are, as you say, intuitive and they're just kind of second nature. You kind of do it or agent marketers are doing it. And they're not really necessarily realizing they're doing it when they're say stimulating demand for something or trying to understand the psychology of, of someone who's uh, and, and whether they're ready to change or not. And, and others have more scientific rigor behind them and it's kind of more obvious. Uh, but you know, you, you chose this interesting entry point into pharma. You, you work in the CX area, this customer experience. How does this provide an opportunity to apply those principles? Yeah, in customer experience, what we're trying to do is to always make sure that customers' insight and the customer experience and perceptions and their their lived experience is at the core of how we ideate and plan experiences for those people. So if you want to understand someone, you have to understand their motivation. You have to understand what drives them. You have to really understand the biases that they might come with. And of course, as humans, we come with lots of biases, right? And so Mm -hmm. what customer experience does is that we try to look at the biases that people might have as humans and as also as humans who may need a vaccine or humans who may need a treatment or humans who are suffering from a chronic condition. So what we're trying to do is get a complete Um, whole human understanding and behavior science is a great lens that allows us to do that. Mm. And like you said, a lot of people come with their preconceived biases and um, we'll get to get to that a little bit later, but you know, given your background and your current role, I'd like to ask for the last decade or so we've at MMNM been writing about, principles of behavioral science being applied in pharma marketing to try to lead people to make meaningful changes, whether it's an adherence or modifying the host of modifiable risk factors that are responsible for a great deal of illnesses. Such strategies like prodding people along the, the stages of change, motivational interviewing, mobile technologies that are designed to close the loop and reveal what's going on with patients in between doctor's appointments or finding innovative ways to get people to their appointments or to clinical trials. So I wanted to ask you, is behavioral change still, as I heard many years ago, the hardest nut to crack in healthcare? I, I think it is. I think, uh, I think it will always be the toughest nut to crack. And that's because you know, humans are irrational and uh, hu- humans are difficult to change. And so I think that that will always be the hardest change um, 
that's the hardest thing to change is, is human behavior. So I still see it um, as a challenge. Um, but I would add to that, I think that the mindset change is also kind of up there with, with regular behavior change. And I think how, how we change mindsets and how we change behaviors are interlocked together. So I would, I would say, yes, behavior change is the hardest nut to crack. But along with that, we have to think about mindset change too. Mm-hmm. One is oftentimes mentioned as a precursor to the other. You can't get somebody to change who's not ready to change, right? We've seen that with right. you know non-smoking campaigns and so forth. A lot of them make the mistake of trying to fast forward people to the action stage, you know, before kind of priming their their mindset, like you say. So let's let's shift gears and talk about progress. You know, we've written about many marketing campaigns over the years that have used strategies grounded in behavioral science like gamification, using augmented and virtual reality to raise empathy amongst physicians, you know, for certain conditions, online interventions tailored to individual patients. What do you think pharma has learned from from all this experience and you know, what, where are the opportunities uh, to, to improve? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that we've learned is that you know, not all nudges are created equal. And that, and that means that while we can use a lot of the basic principles in behavior science, the context in which we apply them are different depending on therapeutic areas and, defend, and depending on patient type, for example. And I think that's one of the biggest learnings. I think early, earlier on, we were all excited just to you know, use a loss aversion, a loss aversion messaging or having certain defaults in certain places. But that actually doesn't always work. Um, you know, a vaccine patient is different from uh, a chronic care patient. And so I think that that's one of the things that we've learned, which I think is actually a really great um, learning, you know, which is that context matters even in the pharmaceutical and healthcare industry. And then I think the other area that that we've uh, that there are some more advances is in creating your own data and leveraging your own data. I think when a lot of organizations start with behavior science, they're looking at the literature and they're leveraging the literature to help inform what they're doing. But but what actually helps uh, optimize? The, the, the different interventions is actually looking at your data over time. So there is an increase in experimentation that is being done to understand what, what interventions are working, what affordances in, in games and apps are working to drive that behavior change. And that's sort of, that's something that I've seen more of, more of that experimentation versus sort of taking, you know, the principle as is. Mm -hmm. Um, but rather gathering that data. And that's super exciting because I think that's where we can continue to learn. By taking in all that data and seeing what, where does that correlate with improvements in behavior change? Oh, this person used this app or um, has this tendency. Interesting. Okay. You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, that people have their implicit biases. Um, You know, the one book I've kind of skimmed on this is, is the one, the undoing project by Daniel Kahneman and, 
Amos Tversky, uh, which identified many of these heuristic mechanisms the mind uses, but which lead people to make predictably wrong judgments. I mean, I'm, sure, I'm not sure this was on your LSE reading list. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, even physicians fall prey to some of these same mistakes in their decisions. Those two, Kahneman and Tversky, did not, however, apply behavioral economics to pharma, nor to how to improve industries, um, you know, patient-facing interventions. So um, I wanted to ask you, are things like behavior-based choice framing being, being used in pharma to, to sort of help people to make the medically uh, sound choice, um, which people don't always make? And it's, uh, sometimes people say it's because of that choice architecture. Yeah. So I think that um, this is one of the areas that as an industry, I think we have to be very, very careful about um, because this is people's health and people's lives, of course. And so I think as we're thinking um, about choice architecture, the most important thing is always to um, do what is, you know, position what is the best health outcome for, for the patient. And uh, thinking about what the default choice might be. And I think that a lot of times that is something that, is done in partnership with different associations, right? And so I think that when it comes to choice architecture, it's about having, you know, the right voices in the room to kind of think through what, what, how, you know, what is the best choice and then how we can then uh, position that. Sure. Yeah. From what I hear, there's a, there's a lot of opportunities to, to use this, this idea that, um, you know, what's at play is, is not a personal choice, but kind of a failure of the decision-making apparatus, you know, everything from you know, taking drugs that have life-saving potential where you would say, hmm, why is, why is compliance so bad in the, in the cancer area? You know, like, don't, right. obviously people know what, what the consequences there are uh, or, or getting a colonoscopy or something, you know, and oftentimes uh, behavioral science can help there. So interesting. Okay. So let's kind of just wrap things up here. I'd love to get your, 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 your last word. You know, where do we go from here? Where, where's, where are the frontiers in terms of applying, you know, behavioral science principles to pharma marketing? What, what are you most excited about? Yeah, um, I'm most excited about the potential about the data that we're getting. We're starting to better understand people's behaviors through through data, through sort of their digital breadcrumbs. And I think that opens up a, a door for opportunity to better understand people's biases and where they're coming from, what might be hangups that they have, that they're not articulating, but that they come with. So I think I'm excited about that. I'm a little bit nervous about that because that is, you know, it, it, it enters into, an, you know, a question about privacy. But I'm, I'm excited to see where this can go. And I'm excited about um, thinking about AI and how we start to leverage AI in, in behavior science and, and we know where that could take us in the future. Do you see it primarily, you know, say using Gen AI to analyze that large data set that you talk about, digital exhaust coming from uh, people's uh, use of uh, apps and wearables and things and kind of trying to distill uh, different uh, things about them that they're perhaps not articulating. Yeah, absolutely. I think predictive nudging could be something that comes from uh, generative AI 
and and quite honestly, I think that that could be happening soon. So I, I think that there's a lot of potential for using um, AI and data and behavior science together to um, help improve health outcomes. And I think that is, uh, I think that's just so incredible to see um, just in, in the last few years, how everything has changed. So it's really something to look forward to. I should probably ask you, what are the challenges that are holding back the field from kind of, you know, going in some of these new directions we've been discussing? They do think that uh, there is a little bit of a credibility issue with um, mm. behavior science, with the con data, I think it is, and, and the Ariely and the Geno work yeah. uh-huh. being questioned. And I think that oh. maybe mm. some people are shying away because of that. Oh, yeah. um, so I think that there could be a little bit of that. I, I do also think that some of this is being absorbed by experimentation because you're using the principles. So I think that those could be some factors. Hmm. So Ariely's work is being, he's a Duke psychologist, right? Um, his work yeah, so yeah. So his work and the work of his partner, Gina Francesca, Gina, Gina Francesca, she was a Harvard mm-hmm. professor, um, is being questioned by this sort of watchdog group mm-hmm. called, they're like something, it's a kind of a funny name, like, Pina Colada or something. Okay. I, I forgot what they're called. Um, or Condata, something like this. Yeah. And they're saying, because they've run AI through it mm-hmm. and like machine learning, and they're like, well, these results are just impossible to mm. have on these studies that uh-huh. have won awards. And so they're kind of going through that. Yeah, that's a little bit of like, a, so there's a little bit of a tarnishing in, in I guess, reputationally, like, can we trust this? But that's why I was saying that actually it's not about trusting the data that was existing, but actually creating your own, running your own behavior science uh, experiments within the company mm-hmm. so that you can trust your own data, uh, which I'm seeing more of. But the Ariely work, he, he's kind of come under a lot of heat for that. And so that's where that stands up. My, my personal stance is actually, I think it's probably fine. I don't think there was any intentional maldoing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, some of the things that were being questioned, yes, I, I, I don't, I don't question his integrity or, or Francesca Dino's necessarily. That's good. All right. Well, with the event coming up on February 15th, our audience is certainly looking forward to continuing the conversation with you, Jasmine, and uh, she will be at the event. So feel free to say hi. And uh, once again, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Jasmine. This has really been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. We'll see you on the 15th. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The long-awaited showdown between Senator Bernie Sanders and CEOs from three big pharma companies finally happened. Last week, the CEOs of Johnson & Johnson, Merck & Bristol-Myers Squibb, testified in front of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, or HELP Committee, spearheaded by Sanders. The hearing centered around one question. Why does the U.S. pay far more for prescription drugs than other countries? J&J CEO Joaquin Duato, Merck CEO Robert Davis, and BMS CEO Chris Borner were all present after Sanders threatened to subpoena Duato and Davis if they did not appear. 
In his opening statement, Sanders asked the CEOs why their expensive drugs, including J&J's Stellara, Merck's Genuvia, and BMS's Eliquis, cost thousands of dollars more than in other countries like Canada or Japan. And here, in my view, is the answer. The United States government does not regulate drug companies. With very few exceptions, the drug companies regulate the United States government. That is the sad state of affairs in a corrupt political system. The pharma executives largely spent their opening remarks defending their high drug prices, arguing that research and development, as well as company operations, would not be sustainable without pricing them so high. But lawmakers pushed back on the innovation argument, pointing out that all companies present spent more on stock buybacks and dividends than they did in R&D. You spend all of your advertising time talking about the research and development spend, but I think most Americans would be pretty surprised given how much the industry talks about research and development that you are actually spending more money shelling out money to investors and buying back stock than you are on research and development. Seeking tangible commitments from the CEOs, Sanders asked Davis if he would pledge to lower the price of Keytruda in the U.S. to the same price as Japan, and asked Borner if he would reduce the list price of Eliquis to the same price in Canada. Both CEOs refused to commit to the price-lowering actions. Senator, we can't make that commitment primarily because the prices in these two countries have very different systems that prioritize very different things. Reshma Ramachandran, an assistant professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine, noted that there was a disconnect between the CEO's talking points and the reality on the ground for many patients across the country. She said, quote, it was disappointing to see. The reality is that so many patients can't access those drugs, so they're not being cured at all by innovation, much less treated appropriately. I'm Lesha Bushak, senior reporter at MMNM. Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Ryan to tell us what's trending in healthcare. Hey, Jack. Yeah, so you might have heard that there was a football game on Sunday. The Kansas City Chiefs officially cemented themselves as a dynasty, defeating the San Francisco 49ers 25-22 in an overtime thriller at Super Bowl 58. As much as I'd like to spend the rest of the segment talking about Patrick Mahomes' legacy, Kyle Shanahan's growing reputation as a choker, or Taylor Swift's world travels to attend and support boyfriend Travis Kelsey, we're going to talk about the most important part of the big game, the ads. There were numerous healthcare and consumer wellness brands making their presence known at the Super Bowl, either through activations leading up to the game or with commercials that ran during the CBS broadcast. In addition to brands like Tums, Cetaphil, Dove, and the nonprofit Power to the Patients, two big pharma names ran commercials as well. Pfizer ran an ad during the third quarter promoting its new Here's to Science national ad campaign centered around its vision for the future of oncology, all set to Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. The ad was created in collaboration with Publicis Conceal, Latruc Publicis New York, Pfizer, and others. Estella's Pharma also ran an ad for the second consecutive year with a new cut of the fewer hot flashes, more not flashes TV spot it debuted in October. The updated commercial aired after the coin toss and before the kickoff. Now, outside of healthcare brands, independent presidential candidate and outspoken anti-vaccine activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. apologized for a 30-second ad from a super PAC that aired during the game. Kennedy, Kennedy. 
the political ad, which was created by the pro-Kennedy American Values 2024 Super PAC, directly references the popular TV commercial used by his uncle, John F. Kennedy, during his successful presidential bid in 1960. Shortly after airing during the big game, Bobby Shriver, a cousin of Kennedy and the son of former U.S. Ambassador to France Sergeant Shriver, publicly criticized the ad, taking issue with it referencing his mother, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, despite her lifelong support for healthcare causes like the nonprofit One Campaign and Red. Uh, Mark, I want to bring you in here because I hosted a Super Bowl party, and I have to tell you that a lot of my friends that came by were impressed with a number of the ads they saw, admittedly not Pfizer or Estella's. I can't even say that any of the other healthcare ads really stuck out to them. There was plenty of conversation when RFK Jr. popped up on the screen, I think, because none of us were expecting it. But what stood out to you on this front? Yeah, thanks, Jack. I, I would imagine the... Uh... The, the contradiction of uh, RFK Jr., you know, hearkening back to Jack Kennedy's uh, campaign, you know, give, given his anti-vax views may have been lost on a great segment of viewers. But in terms of what stood out to me, I, you know, in terms of the it was probably the Pfizer Estellas and, and kind of who won the Pharma Super Bowl. I know that was kind of the chatter um, in the trade media. Um, and it sounds like Pfizer got more of a pop out of its brand, out of its commercial effort. Of course, it was a, a corporate brand spot um, rather than a, a branded brand spot, if, so to speak. Um, and, you know, the when you're trying to you know, use the Super Bowl as a way to advertise something, whether it's a, a pharma brand or, you know, disease awareness, um, you know, like several years ago with toenail fungus, you know, it's, it's going to be uh, an uphill climb because of the audience and, and the need for, you know, fair balance and having to run all the side effects. So it's not necessarily surprising that, a, you know, a corporate ad would do better. And, you know, in terms of, you know, having the tie-in with uh, Travis Kelsey already kind of being a Pfizer spokesperson, it seemed to make sense um, and they got uh, they got some juice out of that spot so I found that interesting I also uh, one of the other things you want to mention uh, I know we're going to talk about pricing transparency but I thought it was really interesting what um, you know the group power to the patients what they did with their Super Bowl PSA featuring rapper jelly roll and, and the country musician Laney Wilson calling for health care price transparency. I just thought that was really interesting. I know Lesher wrote about it prior to the, the big game. And, um, but um, it was just a really, I thought it was a really interesting venue uh, to tap into what remains a very popular sentiment among voters, which is the, obviously the high price of drugs, um, you know, amidst all of the other problems we have in healthcare, um, it's still, still kind of, rings loudest. And uh, to, to use that venue, I thought, I thought it was very bold uh, for them to do that. And it also, you know, I kind of wrote a piece uh, Monday, so I kind of put in a plug in there in terms of whether pharma's lobbying group um, needs a, a, a reset in terms of its policy priorities, because it threatens to kind of lose the narrative, uh, as you see kind of groups like this that are becoming more and more strident in, in speaking for the for the patient. And here they are, they're not necessarily calling for lower prices, they're just calling for more healthcare price transparency. I mean, I'm sure everybody would love to be able to afford their drugs more, but kind of like uh, calling out a, a related adjacent argument, just that was really interesting uh, use of their media budget there. Yeah, I want to bring Lesh in here because she's written about a number of uh, Power of the Patients campaigns to start the year, and a lot of them are targeted primarily at hospitals and insurers. But like you said, Mark, they're not too far off in the drug pricing argument. Lesha, what did you make of their ad and then all the other ones that we talked about here that aired during the game? I'm curious how the Pfizer ad went over to a lot of Americans who are watching the Super Bowl who arguably are often 
um, you know, on the political spectrum that tends to skew more anti-big pharma, anti-vax um, in that arena. Um, we know that pharma's reputation went up during COVID, but then I believe it's sort of dropped back down to a level similar to what it was before COVID. We know that vaccinations are dropping, um, COVID vaccinations are dropping as well. So it was interesting to see Pfizer try to kind of uh, reiterate that message that they were very much pushing during COVID, which is, you know, trust the science, um, even though that we, even though that a large portion of the American population does not trust that messaging. Um, and that's sort of one of the big um, issues I think pharma has in reaching that population, especially when it comes to things like vaccinations. Um, and at least at the party that I was at, you know, I, I don't think that the Pfizer commercial went over too well. Um, but the RFK one did garner a lot of attention. So I guess it did its job in getting a lot of attention, getting a lot of talk out of it. Um, it was interesting that he chose to go down that nostalgia route, sort of trying to bank on his uncle's legacy, even though a lot of uh, some of his policy choices or stances don't really match um, and sort of address succinctly by his cousin, as you, as you mentioned, um, Jack Bobby Shriver, who said, my cousin's Super Bowl ad used our uncle's faces and my mother's. She would be appalled by his deadly healthcare views. Respect for science, vaccines, and healthcare equity were in her DNA. So it's interesting to see sort of all three of these ads kind of um, coming from these different directions. And yeah, the, the power to the patient's PSA, obviously coming from a totally different place than Pfizer might be sort of here. And um, we're obviously going to be talking a lot about price transparency and sort of how this greater push for, for price transparency, I believe, is going to continue happening. So we'll probably see a lot more ads along those lines moving forward. And just to hop in here before we go on to our next segment, I know that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did apologize for the ad running and it was he attributed to it being run by a super PAC, which he does not have any control over. I do think it's worth noting that it's still up on his Twitter X profile. It was pinned as of yesterday morning when we wrote our story on it and he had a fundraising link at the bottom of it. So how sincere that apology really is as it as it relates to the legacy of the Kennedy political family. I leave that you, the listener, to decide. Mark Cuban, the billionaire entrepreneur, appeared on the Journal podcast last week and talked about just about everything. The 2024 presidential election, his partial sale of ownership in the Dallas Mavericks, and his business pivot to focus on cost plus drugs. About halfway through the interview, Cuban discusses cost plus drugs, its origins, its disruptive success thus far, and its growth potential. We're not putting out our revenue, but we're growing 28% last month. Right. And we expect that we'll grow the same amount this month. And our biggest challenge, really, we could grow faster if we could keep up with the volume. That's our biggest challenge right now, just keeping up with the volume. You know, it's actually and this is going to sound crazy. It's been the easiest business I've ever had to grow. The easiest business you've ever had to grow. By far, not even close. Now, Cuban is far from the shyest person in media, which makes his candor around the healthcare sector and the pharmacy world all that more compelling. Mark, I want to throw it over to you for your thoughts, because obviously he is such a big 
loud name in the space, but he is really trying to make a difference as we were talking earlier about addressing the price issues that people face with healthcare in a meaningful on the ground way. Yeah, thanks, Jack. I um, thought that uh, the, the update that he gave was really interesting on how Cost Plus Pharmacy is doing. He said that they're growing 28% a month, I take it, in revenue. And he said, quote unquote, this is the easiest business I've ever had to grow uh, because this, the system itself is so opaque uh, but at Cost Plus, we work outside the typical system. And so he, uh, he seems to think that things are going well, kind of being that, you know, maverick, uh, excuse the term, uh, there. So, um, now the, the knock on Cost Plus drugs, if, if you could call it that, is that they provide mostly generic drugs. Uh, not many brand name drugs are on there, but that model, um, you know, where it's just the, the, the price of the, of the product plus a small markup and the, and the uh, delivery fee and the transparency there. Um, it's catching on. And I think it's catching on because, you know, as, as he put it, traditionally people couldn't shop for healthcare and now they can go on a website, whether it's cost plus or good RX or some of the other services. And they can certainly do, do that to a certain extent, whether they're on Medicare or they're on an ACA plan or a private insurance, if they want to pay cash and they can see the cost plus the price. And so, um, it's catching on. And how is it catching on? Well, uh, we, we saw uh, CVS, uh, for one, um, follow the cost plus model. They adopted uh, something called cost vantage, uh, which uh, was being phased in in the first half of this year for cash paying uh, customers at its uh, pharmacies. And uh, the, those customers um, will see pricing in, in that same model. And uh, not only that, but after after CVS debuted its model, another one uh, followed in, in their footsteps. Cigna owned PBM Express Scripts, so that they will use a similar model uh, used as, as Cuban uh, and CVS is, is doing. So we're seeing this uh, catch on, and I think it, it could be perhaps um, as we reported on MMM a preview, um, given that uh, PBM reform is coming down the pike, or you know so, some people would say, given that the number of hearings directed at PBMs and the number of legislative efforts that are brewing on the Hill aimed at reforming PBMs and adding more transparency into what is a very opaque drug supply chain. I think that's a natural segue for you, Lesha, because I know you've been covering, obviously, the hearings and the House passed a bill last week or a House panel passed a bill last week targeting PBMs for reform. But ultimately, just given how divided Congress is, any of that action and change is really going to come from the private sector. So I'm curious what you made of his comments in the larger context of things. Yeah, I mean, from the policy perspective, there has definitely been this sort of snowballing momentum in recent years, um, a push for transparency um, from lawmakers, from the public, um, from these other stakeholders, um, even with the Senate help hearing last week and sort of in the last year that Bernie Sanders has headed the help committee, um, there's been a lot of hearings on this issue, um, you know, increased scrutiny on PBMs as well as the pharma industry. Um, I also recently spoke with someone from Transparency Rx, which is a coalition of PBMs who advocate for transparency in the industry. Uh, Joe Shields, managing director founder of Transparency Rx, uh, last week when I was covering the hearing, and he was very adamant that this push for transparency will continue, that it's not a matter of if, but when that transparency legislation passes. So, um, you know, most of the experts I've spoken to in the policy space believe that this push is only going to grow and continue from here. Whether or not 
tangible legislation passes anytime soon is another question. Obviously, given the gridlock in Congress and the upcoming elections, we'll probably know more after the elections. Um, but the sort of behind the scenes push and this increased scrutiny will definitely continue. What's your next story? It's come, kind of coming out of left field. Yeah, I was about to say, we've, we've kind of handled the biggest headlines of the week, but I would be remiss if we didn't head to Chernobyl to talk about mutant wolves. There was a study that was published late last week that found mutant wolves roaming the deserted streets of Chernobyl, the site of the 1986 nuclear reactor explosion, had developed resistance to cancer. Scientists have welcomed the unexpected discovery from the Chernobyl exclusion zone as a sign that humans may be able to use the findings in the fight against cancer. Now, I know this is obviously not something that's directly tangible, I guess you could say, to the pharma marketing uh, landscape. But obviously, anytime that you have something like this, I mean, these wolves, uh, I think the information that I'd seen from the study was that they are exposed to about five times the levels of radiation that a human should be exposed to. They've somehow been able to, over the past nearly four decades, evolve and make that a part of their own uh, lifestyle in terms of resisting cancer. So really an interesting finding. I think it's got a lot of people, especially as it coincides with Pfizer having this renewed push into oncology saying, you know, what is the next foray into cancer care? How can we prevent people from getting sick? And what does this matter in the larger scheme of things? Absolutely. And it's it's fascinating. It, it's a counterintuitive finding. And as as they analyze the, the DNA of these wolves, you know, they're finding, as you said, Jack, that they've been exposed to obviously much higher amounts of radiation than, than we are in our everyday lives. And their immune systems have sort of seemed to have adapted over the last few decades to it. And it kind of also dovetails nicely with the trend toward targeted uh, treatment of cancer uh, over the last uh, couple of decades where you have, uh, I think the article that you linked to, Jack talks about the, the BRCA gene, which makes you know women more likely to develop uh, breast or ovarian cancer and, uh, and drugs that are targeted toward that mutation. If, if they could isolate what that mutation is and either develop a targeted antibody for it, or on the flip side, you know, dip into cell and gene therapy and um, you know, use a vector to introduce a corrective, um, in this case, a, the mutated gene, whatever it is that's helping these wolves uh, resist cancer, what a, what a development, what a breakthrough that could be. So it's really um, get, gets our imaginations going here. And just before I throw it over to Lesha, I do want to note that when I was looking at some of our archives around this time last year, we were talking about the show, The Last of Us, and this kind of post-apocalyptic, could fungi be the death of us? And a year later, we're talking about mutant wolves in Chernobyl and what that could mean for cancer care. So it's this this time of year seems to really do something to the podcast. But Lesha, I'm curious your thoughts on it. Yeah, you know, like the headline almost sounds like science fiction-y, but it's actually super fascinating when you read into it. Um, it's interesting that scientists are able to kind of view the Chernobyl zone as a um, sort of a Petri dish or sort of like they're, they're able to watch in real time how evolution, you know, the kind of... Uh, how life basically becomes resilient to these very extreme conditions. Um, so it really kind of points to the resiliency of life in general. Um, but it'll be very interesting to see what they do find out in terms of the, the genes, as you mentioned, Mark, and how that plays into cancer. Um, and um, yeah, it'll be very, very interesting to watch this, this research play out. A rare silver lining from everything that happened at Chernobyl. Yeah, seriously. And the fact that they could turn it into, uh, as you said, a Petri dish uh, for, um, you know, that could advance science is, is really encouraging news. 
thanks everybody for joining us in this week's episode of the MMNN podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's show when we'll be joined by Dermavant Sciences CEO, Todd Zavodnik. Take care, everybody. That's it for this week. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>